is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. One thing my research for this episode has shown is that it was very easy to acquire dynamite in our recent past, as if anyone with a grudge and a cold enough soul could wish their hands full of nitroglycerin. And I didn't look into this at all, but where does dynamite even come from? A tree? No one knows. (laughs) My great-grandpa used to grow it. The word important, followed by an exclamation point, was written in scrawl three times across the envelope. And within there was a letter, which in part read, Quote, by the time you receive this message, or very shortly thereafter, there will be an explosion take place in your store. This explosion has been brought about to convince you that the writers of this message are dead serious about the demands and instructions contained therein. This first explosion has been designed to do a minimum amount of damage, whereas the second explosion, if you permit it to happen, is designed to do the maximum amount of damage. We have concealed in your store charges of explosives that are, outside of a nuclear weapon, composed of the most powerful explosive material that can be obtained. This letter was received by the addressee, Aaron M. Frank, 64, President and General Manager of Portland, Oregon's Myron Frank Department Store. It had been left on a display counter by an unknown young woman earlier in the day and was handed off by six saleswomen and secretaries on its journey to the top floor. It had finally been delivered to Frank by a credit department window cashier around 2.30 p.m. on April 15, 1955. Wait, was he Frank of Myron Frank? Yeah, he's the man, yeah, Aaron Frank. Oh, holy shit. Yeah, he's the guy. I didn't realize. It was Friday surprise sale day, and as Mr. Frank continued reading the letter in his 12th floor office, four sticks of dynamite planted in a third floor restroom exploded. How scary. I know. The 63-year-old building quaked, and many floors of windows on the Morrison Street main entrance facade blew out, sending glass flying for hundreds of feet. A throng of customers, salespeople, and other employees flooded out of the store as smoke poured from third-floor windows, lapping the exterior black with soot. Police quickly cordoned off the area surrounding the megastore, and despite the large number inside when the dynamite went, only two people were injured, and slightly so, struck by flying debris. I bet they got their free coupon surprise. Mm -hmm. The letter threatened a second bomb, which would be allowed to detonate if a $50,000 ransom were not delivered. The money half of which was to be divided into small bills, was loaded in a suitcase and given to a messenger who was instructed to wait for a call in a phone booth three blocks away at the Imperial Hotel, which is now Hotel Lucia. A police patrolman named Per A.J. Leans was sent into the danger zone as the courier, wearing a white carnation in his lapel as instructed. The undercover officer found a note in the designated phone booth, which directed him around the corner to the Bell Telephone Exchange Building and to booth 15 in a bank of many. Hello, young people. A telephone exchange (laughs) is where one would pick up the phone's handset and speak to a human operator who had to physically patch your line to the line you were calling with their hands to connect the call. Wow. But how? (laughs) What a time. Operator. (laughs) Anyway, the cop waited in the designated booth, and when the phone rang, the soft voice on the other end of the line directed the officer to a key 
and another note in an adjacent phone booth. That note sent him about a mile north to Union Station, Portland's train and bus depot extraordinaire, where another note told the man to take a taxi south toward Eugene at no faster than 25 miles an hour, (laughs) which would have taken forever on the roads back then. That's so specific. I wonder if they had calculated how long it would take, Mm. and that's why they were saying. Yeah, that's bizarre. That is weird. I want to know the thought behind that. And the officer was to throw the suitcase out when a car pulled up behind them and flashed its lights three times. That's so elaborate. You almost, I'm kind of like rooting for them in a sense. <laughs> I'm like, wow. I do love a, a plot like that where yeah. people have to keep following little instructions. It's very like um, Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> mm. The taxi-driven police officer saw no cars approach flashing their lights during his slow mosey south. So the taxi U-turn 15 miles from Eugene in Junction City and returned to Portland with the money and probably bored as hell. That drive is so dull. <laughs> the Meyer and Frank store was closed for two days following the bombing, so investigators could scour every crack and shadowed corner of the store for other explosives the bomber may have laid. But luckily, no others were found. And one week after the bombing, quote, business was back to normal with shoppers seemingly undismayed by the whole thing, which is a sentiment often displayed after a public tragedy. If we pretend it didn't happen, then it won't happen again. After this bombing, quote, the city had a plague of telephone bombing threats. Six of those who had called in threats were arrested and questioned about their possible involvement in the department store carnage, but none could be connected to the crime. And this next tangent is only related to the store bombing because it happened the very next week, and I will definitely be covering it in a future episode. It was a few days after the downtown explosion, and just before midnight on April 21st, when a car bomb destroyed a vehicle in northeast Portland's Columbia Edgewater Country Club parking lot. Owner of the car, attorney Oliver Kermit Smith, 35, was killed in the blast, his body thrown 20 feet into another car. A vehicle driving without its headlights on was seen speeding away from the site and onto the highway. Smith had been attending a stag party at the club, which is an event where men would gather to watch pornography reels on a little film projector, usually to celebrate one of the group's pending nuptials, and probably while guzzling bourbon and sucking down not-at-all-penis-shaped cigars. Is that the, how it originated? That's what a stag party. Because I knew a stag party in like the UK is like a bachelor yeah. party. Yeah, that's what it originated. Yeah, from. it started. I was looking, and it started way, you know, thousand, a thousand years ago in Rome or wherever. And Where they, they caught have, a stag. They would do. <laughs> yeah, they would have like a uh, what do they call that? Like a you know a hedonistic party where they're just like doing it, slapping it, and rubbing <laughs> it down. My kind of party. <laughs> hey. Wow. Um, anyway, it was a circus. Smith's spouse, Marjorie, was arrested and charged with the murder, enduring the kinds of character attacks journalists and lawyers and law enforcement personnel are all too happy to lob at a female defendant in the lead-up to and for the duration of her trial. The case of Marjorie Smith concluded, in ways I will save for a full episode, very much like a Law & Order episode, in that it became totally clear-cut who was responsible, and it involved a guy with the last name Wolf, but not Dick. And that was just a week after Myron Frank? I think it was exactly one week. Yeah. Six days, maybe. Yeah. The reason this episode became two is because as I was doing the research for this one and the other story I'm going to tell today, I found bombing after bombing after bombing. It was very popular in the Northwest. Wow. In the last century. (laughs) Moving on from that juicy little nugget, the Meyer and Frank bombing investigation continued through the year with few solid developments. In May, A copycat extortion note threatened a Meyer and Frank-style explosion at one of Portland's Fred Meyer one-stop shopping store locations. There was no actual bomb, 
and the man convicted of the crime had no connection to the Meyer and Frank bomb. In the same month, several mailboxes in town were destroyed by explosives, but there was no attempt made at extortion. And after a week's investigation, four Lincoln High School students were arrested and admitted their responsibility. Two of the boys had found some dynamite caps while on a fishing trip in southwest Washington and were inspired by the department store bombing to do some fun, super dangerous pranks. And the teens were more than lucky that the dynamite cap they'd placed under the hood of their teacher's vehicle <gasps> had been set incorrectly and oh failed my to blow. God. Hilarious prank. That oh is my terrifying. God. Like I said, dynamite was just lying around what, all over the literally. place. Do you think they had like this concept that it didn't really hurt that bad since nobody got really injured in the Myron Frank bombing? Yeah, that it was more like a big firework or something, a big firecracker. Oh. I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, wow. But yeah, teenagers have always been teenagers. <laughs> by July, more than 100 people had been questioned and the $28,000 reward being offered by Aaron Frank in conjunction with the Oregon Bankers Association was called an asset in the accumulation of leads. And Portland police reported tentative identification of some of those responsible, but made no arrests. By October, everyone seemed to be over the whole bombing thing. A headline from the 10th reads, Bombing threat is taken lightly. And the article beneath details an anonymous call placed to the Exposition Recreation Commission, which was heading the proposed construction of Portland's Expo Center in what was then called East Vanport. The caller asked if the commission had reconsidered the location and when the answerer said no, the caller said, quote, don't be surprised if somebody opens up the door and throws a bomb in there and gets rid of all your crooked politicians. Police did not take the threat seriously and did nothing in response. Wow. Isn't that cute? Yeah, typical. The search for the bomber was wrung out and lagging, but postal inspectors Stanley Smoot and Roland Severston were following up on an unrelated complaint of mail fraud regarding 38-year-old William Clarence Petticord and in their work found that the extortion letter sent to the Meyer and Frank, as well as the phone booth and locker notes, were written on the same typewriter. <gasps> That's some thorough investigation. They got, they got him. Dang. William Petticord, originally from Fort Bayard, New Mexico, was unemployed, and his only income source was state aid for the blind and the change he acquired selling pencils on the street. His vision had been impaired in 1937 when a refrigerator he was repairing exploded, which destroyed the sight in one of his eyes with the other only able to distinguish between light and dark. He was 19 at the time. Oh, my God. After the accident, Vancouver, Washington resident Petticord was provided a candy stand to run in the post office by the city's Lions Club. It was robbed twice almost the moment it opened and didn't last long after. Petticord and his guide dog, Duke, had once made headlines in 1938 when the very good boy led William with ease up Beacon Rock, an 800-foot monolith, the core of an ancient volcano, in the Columbia River Gorge, which was captured on newsreel cameras. That is impressive. That's a very hard hike. Yeah, and the, the quote, he said that he didn't even have to grab the, uh, the guiding handhold wire thing on the, on the way up. The dog was so good. And Duke was one of the first uh, seeing-eye dogs in this, uh, this area. Yay, yeah. let's hear it for Duke. Sadly, Duke was poisoned sometime after their <gasps> impressive climb. <gasps> I know. What? And the loss planted a seed of bitterness in William's heart which would come to full bloom years later in a department store restroom. I am so sad. I was very Duke. sad to hear about that. I Duke. could understand why that would turn mm -hmm. you. We've all seen John Wick. <laughs> um, we haven't. Sorry. Oh. Not a Keanu Fianu? I am. I'm just not into those types of movies, really. I mean, if you vouch for it, maybe I'd give it a whirl. I vouch, I vouch for, for all three. 
Really? Oh, I'm not like so super fun. into action movies. Very unpopular. Sorry to bring this very down. unpopular. <laughs> and people are going to be furious. You know at what? You. Fine, I'll watch it. Gosh, we'll do it. It's on Peacock. All three of them, and they're great. William worked for a while as a door-to-door broom salesman, and once hitchhiked to New York, where in 1948 he was on the radio program We the People, which began broadcasting in 1936 and featured human interest stories featuring politicians, celebrities, and everyday people like you and me. He'd traveled there after an unnamed wealthy businessman offered to pay for a corneal transplant, which was unsuccessful. Quote, The miracle I had spent 12 long years waiting for had happened. I could see. Sunlight was streaming across the ceiling. The doctor was only going to cut away the stitches, but I didn't know that. Startled, Petticord jerked his head away, and the scissors caught a stitch, (gasps) making his eye bleed and his vision, only moments old, return to blackness. That is horrifying that and is sad sickening on so many levels oh my god it worked <gasps> and it they didn't warn him like coming at you with some scissors oh, sir don't move it's very important oh my that's horrible god. that how did that not make an episode of gray's anatomy <sighs> truly meredith when you were saying that, I assumed like the procedure was didn't so work. new that it just like I think yeah. you wrote it like that on purpose. Oh, oh, golly. This poor guy. Toying with our emotions yeah, he's really here. been through a lot. He was later invited to try the surgery again, but turned down the offer. The Petticords, William and his wife Dorothy, had moved from Oakland to Portland in 1946 after they were caught selling houses they didn't own. <gasps> <laughs> Okay, so lifelong criminal then. (laughs) (laughs) They pleaded guilty and were each sentenced to six years in prison, but the judge felt sympathy for the couple, so he suspended their sentences and gave them 30 days to leave California. That's nice. Like, get rid of the problem. Send them to another state. Like, we don't want to bother with you, please. And that was not the only time law enforcement had encountered the man. Petticord had once conned six physically disabled people into hand-painting neckties for him, which he then sent unsolicited to potential buyers. Those who received the ties were in no way obligated to return them, and I don't know if William was ever charged in any way for that nasty bit of trickery, but it seems like a really amateurish plot. I don't really see what the yeah what the win what the is payoff. on that. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, give it a whirl. You never know until you try, right? <laughs> that's true. And if you yeah, you have a bunch of people you can uh, manipulate. Yeah, that's great. Hell yeah. Maybe that was the goal. He oh. didn't really care about the outcome. Mm. Oh, to see, oh yeah oh that's to see if he could yeah influence people that's that's an astute observation Emily seems like something I would try to do like on Big Brother <laughs> yeah <laughs> Petticord operated a private chemical laboratory in the two years leading up to the bombing but it went bankrupt and had to close permanently which happened ten days before the Meyer and Frank restroom was killed mm. and went to the big department store in the sky <laughs> good God. The present fraud allegation against Petticord was a little bit less despicable than the deal with the neckties. Postal investigators Smoot and Severston were assessing claims that during the summer of 1954, Petticord had sold, quote, statewide territorial rights to a dozen men he suckered into selling his restorative chemical products, miracle liquids that claimed to repair items like nylon stockings, aging home phone wiring, and anything else that might need fixing. Wow. I mean, now that's a tale as old as time. Yeah, yeah no it sounds like eugenics. She'll She'll like like it, it too. too. (laughs) Petticord would change the name of the company, initially called Metro Chemical Laboratories, and then sell the rights over and over and over again. These products were found to be stocked in many iterations, 
often within the same stores, and simply relabeled. The letters he sent to enact this script were matched to the same typewriter used in the Meyer and Frank extortion letter, as were the instruction notes left for the ransom courier. Eight months after the bombing, on the night of December 15, 1955, Chief of Detectives William Brown followed a couple of leads to Hudson Street Homes, one of Portland's temporary housing projects built during World War II, and mostly located in North and Northeast Portland, sandwiched between the Columbia and Willamette Rivers, and also along the periphery of the city. This is where shipyard workers and most of the poorest and non-whitest of Portlanders were cordoned off to live away from the city's moneyed residents. Chief Brown said the typewriter connection and a witness report from a store employee who saw a woman and a blind man near the restroom just before the Meyer and Frank explosion had sent him to the area and the front door to which he definitely gave a scary police knock. The door cracked, and Dorothy McCourtney Petticord answered warily. She was married to William and mother to their five children, Janet Jean, Yvonne, Larry, Marlene, <laughs> and Donna, who ranged from three to 12 years old. William was home as well, and he almost immediately admitted to Chief Brown that he was responsible for the bombing. William said, quote, I was just trying to get some extra money with which to support my family. Desperate for funds after his sales territory grift had fallen apart and his business closed, he figured the president of Meyer and Frank was the richest man in town and so became his target. While her husband confessed, Dorothy sobbed and shouted over and over again that she couldn't believe what was happening. She, quote, went to pieces, and because it was the 50s, she was sent for a time to a hospital for the insane. Where they used a vibrator. Definitely. This was after she wore out investigators' patience by repeatedly confessing to involvement in the crime and then retracting those confessions. Charges against her were eventually dropped, and I do not believe William was ever charged or sentenced for the sales rights fraud. At the police station after his arrest, William said, quote, I'd have collected the $50,000 too. Only my eyes gave out. Detective Chief Brown asked for clarification, knowing Petticord's sight had been taken almost 20 years before, and William answered, quote, Yeah, that's what I call my sister-in-law, Joyce Keller. She led me into the washroom where I put the dynamite. Newspapers began calling him the blind bomber. 28-year-old Joyce Keller was arrested and disparaged by police who said they'd trailed her from tavern to tavern to find and place her in custody. And they were all too happy to mention to the press that she was divorced with three children who lived in foster care. Petticord and Keller were charged with injuring persons and property by explosives, and their bail was set at $75,000 for each of them. Joyce maintained that she was innocent throughout. Quote, During Keller's trial, Petticord, who was to be the state's star witness against her, tried to commit suicide and then refused to testify against his sister-in-law. The state's case against Keller began to unravel from there. Portland police detectives testified as character witnesses to her defense. The man she was living with testified she had been watching television with him at the time of the blast, and her estranged husband, Clifford Keller, appeared unexpectedly, claiming, quote, I'm convinced she couldn't have done this thing. The court agreed, and in May 1956, found Keller innocent. She went on to, quote, live a peaceful life working at the Nabisco plant in North Portland and volunteering for animal rescue. That's kind of surprising they were going after her. It sounds like almost more intensely than him. He's the one saying, yeah, she just guided me where I needed to go. I think because of that, they found her to be at first more culpable. They were probably oh, also like he, holding his sight against him, his lack of sight against him. Like, he how could he do, do that? that? He needed someone. Yeah. To, yeah, 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 I suppose. She was acquitted, but I, I believe that she did do it. 
Yeah. I think she was there and then it, it, it just wasn't prosecutable. Right. No, the witness was, whatever witness saw them wasn't, it wasn't enough. And it's interesting to see that when you know someone did do it, but like the circumstances, they, mm-hmm. you know, you really shouldn't. Yeah, they maybe. just don't have it. Yeah. William Petticord refused his lawyer's request for an insanity plea and on April 20th, 1956, pleaded guilty to bombing and attempted extortion. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison and served 10 before he was paroled. Dorothy Petticord divorced William during this time and then testified against him in the exclusive sales territories for Miracle Products fraud case. William appealed for a post-conviction hearing in April of 1963. He claimed innocence and said the confession he gave after his arrest was coerced out of him by the police. His appeal was denied. In January 1972, William, back among the public, was arrested in New York City for practicing psychology without a license, (laughs) after which he posted bail and then could not be located. Again, the manipulation. I think he was into that. Yeah. Yeah, I think he he really developed a like an antisocial disorder or whatever when yeah. he like hated hated other people. He well, hated kind mankind. of not surprising. Yeah. Your dog gets killed. It's like a country song. In 1978, William Petticord died of a heart attack in Whittier, California, and his body was cremated. He was 59. Myron Frank was bought out by Macy's, which turned it into one of its stores. Its final day under the original name was September 8th, 2006. For locals, Portland people, Meyer and Frank was where the real Santa was. For anyone that goes way back, and I know the five of you that know what I'm talking about are like, yes. And it had a monorail in the ceiling of the room. You would go in and it was like a full winter wonderland in the basement and they had a full functional monorail that you could go get on and ride around and wave at Santa and overlook the winter scene and it was amazing. So Sounds thank nice. you, Meyer and Frank, for that. Well, that, that's hard not to have some emotion for him. You know, it's one of those cases where you you do feel bad for the bad guy and you could you can kind of see or that The creation of him. Yeah, yeah. his origin split. story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, yikes. The just disregard for human life, just yeah. like, oh, well, whatever happens when I set this bomb off, at least I get my 50 grand. Yeah. Yeah, you're willing to kill whoever mm-hmm. in that situation. And it's, yeah, very, children. Very dark. Mainly yeah. women and children, yeah. I imagine. Definitely. Yeah. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years, but if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, All of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. 
right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Beginning in 1885, the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, one of the symbols of American independence, began touring the country, making appearances at various expositions and patriotic gatherings, which always saw a massive turnout whenever the bell was around. During the summer of 1915, the bell was sent on tour by President Woodrow Wilson to gain support for the United States to enter World War I and to stem, quote, public sentiment turning against immigration. The backlash involved homes and businesses belonging to German Americans being vandalized, music written by German composers not being played in concert, some pro-German people were tarred and feathered, and one was reportedly lynched. Towns, streets, and schools were renamed if they even hinted at Deutsch. Germantown, Nebraska was renamed Garland, and East Germantown, Indiana, became Pershing. And the same was true for food. Pretzels were no longer served at saloons. Hamburgers and hot dogs, called Frankfurters at the time, were renamed Liberty Steaks and Sausages, <laughs> respectively. And sauerkraut, beloved national dish of the Germans, had been rechristened Liberty Cabbage. <laughs> Freedom Fries! <laughs> Good to know we've always been stupid. <laughs> Do you guys remember what Freedom Fries was about back then? I think it was post 9-11, and we were going to our little fake war, and I believe France was like, yeah, we're not doing that. And everyone was like, we hate France. They're so weak. That's right. So we're not calling them French fries. Yeah. Freedom Fries! Because they don't want to join the... <laughs> that war, makes that me was. nauseous. Yeah. I also like the idea of like, we got to get the people inspired to go to war where a bunch of people are going to die. Let's show them a bell. Then they will be totally on board. It's a symbol of American freedom. (laughs) And it probably worked on a large percent of people. Yeah, it sure did. You're going to see that in a second. Oh, boy. People people were happy about the bell. Let freedom ring. (laughs) The train that carried the bell was custom designed and consisted of seven cars. Its sixth car, reinforced with shock absorbers, held the bell under a copper canopy and was lit at night by a small generator so those that wish could watch it cut through the dark like a runner with a torch. They built a train? Come on, kids, let's go outside and watch the Liberty Bell pass by. It's the highlight of my summer. My God, they built a train for a bell? It's a big bell. It's not that big. It's not bigger than any bells you have. How dare you? (laughs) The bell waved goodbye to Philly on July 4th, beginning its route through 275 cities, towns, and hamlets, where it was seen by 25 million people across the states, a quarter of the country's population, before reaching its stop in Portland on the morning of the 15th. And people were so jacked for any information regarding the bell, the paper even printed that each of the four Philly police officers guarding it had plowed through two whole dollars worth of breakfast during the train stop in Portland. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) Oink, oink. Oh, my God. Portland is also where a judge released two prisoners after they begged for his grace to allow them out to see the relic. (gasps) 
Lisa, let, let me see pr- the bell. They let people out of prison to go see a bell? I'll Jail. be cured. All I need is a visual. I need a shot of patriotism and I'll, I'll be <laughs> on the straight and narrow. A good boy. I swear is it. <laughs> they were both women. The train headed south from Portland a little after 12, draped in thousands of roses and with several Chinook salmon on ice for later. That afternoon, 2,000 Salem school children and the Oregon National Guard marched in a parade celebrating the train. The crowd turnout was so massive, as many as 40,000 in Salem, that Front Street overflowed for seven blocks on both sides of the street. A headline from the day reads, quote, Teams and automobiles cross bridge in a veritable stream to arrive in time. Men, women, and children shout and scream with delight and enthusiasm, and old men weep in joy at sight of beloved relic. The passion. I'm trying to think if there are any relics that I would get that jazzed about. Maybe, maybe like the statue of David. <laughs> like I'd go outside my house to watch the train, <laughs> you know? Well, and it was a different time, not as much. We are a very sullen society now. <laughs> We're all jaded. Maybe those things would have excited us if we didn't have Netflix, That's you know? That's true. I wish I could get excited for a big bell. <laughs> and the idea of unity, like we're all experiencing something. Something that we all like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it never happened again. Wherever the train went, it was followed by children running after it, blowing whistles, screaming, and ringing little bells of their own. At the Liberty Bell special's stop in Medford, quote, there was an outburst of cheers and a general lifting of hats. <laughs> After Oregon, the bell rode the train south through California to San Francisco, site of the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition, quote, an international fair held to celebrate the opening of the Panama Canal and an opportunity to demonstrate the city's recovery from the 1906 earthquake. The bell was welcomed to the city by a carpet of California flowers that wound from the railroad station the exposition site, and souvenirs were handed out like they were at every stop, event pamphlets shaped like bells, and metal badges for the kitties. The Liberty Bell was returned to its home, Philly's Independence Hall, on November 26, 1915. The round-trip journey, estimated at 17,000 miles, was the last of these tours to ever take place. And I have to imagine that fervor for the Liberty Bell remained in the heart of many Oregon youngsters who viewed the bell that summer, because in 1962, the city of Portland bought one of their own. Purchased for $8,000, or nearly $80,000 today, and constructed at the McShane Bell Foundry in Baltimore, this duplicate of the famous bell in Philadelphia was delivered to Portland on June 28, 1963. And who was offering that? Like, was that part of the deal? Did they send the bell around just to get people hyped up on it so they could get all these orders for... Get your own bell for your own city. I didn't see that. No, I don't. I don't. Mm. I don't know. I, I, too, yeah. uh... Being a president must have been easier then. You're like, all right, this is what we do. We're going to put the bell on a train, going to send it around, and then everyone will rally for the troops. That's right. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have to worry about drone strikes. <laughs> Simpler times. So when people think about, oh, yeah, our presidents back then were so smart and so great. Maybe they, they had nothing to do. They might have been real dumb. He had a lot of time to, like, draw <laughs> pictures of a train. <laughs> and then the bell's going to go here. I assume that's what Woodrow Wilson sounded like. Yeah. A little baby. Little baby voice. <laughs> Sadly for the bell, which is about five and a half feet in length with height dimensions, it slipped off its supports during transit, <gasps> which damaged its steel, brick, and mahogany base and the beam on which it hung. Oh, no. The one-ton replica had to undergo repairs before its unveiling to the public on the 4th of July that year at the Let Freedom Ring extravaganza I knew it. in Northeast <laughs> Portland's Holiday Park, where it bing-bonged for the first time at noon sharp. 
Let freedom ring. <laughs> Let the white doves sing. <laughs> Sorry. Emily's available. Let to... the whole world know that today is a day of a reckoning. All right, I'm done. Let the weak be wrong. <laughs> Let the right be wrong. Okay, that's all I know. <laughs> Beautiful. Following the Bell's injury, a legal dispute ensued between the city and the Maryland Foundry, which was settled when Portland eventually agreed to pay for the Bell at a discount. The big beauty of a bell was installed in downtown City Hall's portico, the column-encircled entrance to the building, on May 5th, 1964. I love how quickly that went sour. We're going to order one of these beautiful bells. And then it breaks, and they're like in a legal argument. <laughs> we can't have anything nice. <laughs> That's right. Construction of the four-story, Italian Renaissance-style city block-length building was completed in 1895, when the roads outside were still dirt. It contains Portland's city council chambers, as well as the offices for the council, meaning the mayor, city commissioners, etc., and was, quote, one of the first large buildings in the Pacific Northwest to have electric wiring, centralized heating, and public elevators. Oh. A little dark history of the city hall is that they had a, um, they stole a 15,000-year-old boulder from uh, the Umatilla tribe. Oh my God. Hello? Yeah, and then they had it installed there and and it was covered in like petroglyphs. It was definitely like an ancient thing for that was important to them. The balls. I love that they're like, okay, we're going to steal that boulder and we're going to display it. So yeah, that was like a little little dark bit of history. So that was in 1910 and they were nice enough to return it only uh, 86 years later, 1996. So it was pretty cool. Anyways, just another little, (laughs) it was like... did, did anyone ever do anything good? <laughs> no. Yeah. I am convinced that human is rotted. All yeah. human. Yeah. We're not supposed <laughs> to. to we're not right. Quote, in the 1960s, the mayor's office was refurbished. A new roof was installed and new trees were planted on the grounds. In 1964, the city remodeled the city council chambers on the second and third floors. Part of the work was to install new lighting to allow television broadcasts from the chamber, while other work added drop tiles to the ceiling, hiding the domed roof. On November 21st, 1970, a dynamite bomb placed under the bell exploded. It flashed, quote, like a sheet of lightning, destroying the bell, peppering the east portico with steel and wood shrapnel, damaging columns, and blowing out its windows and those within a three-block radius. It was a little bit after 3 a.m. on the street side of City Hall. The explosion, heard for miles, had broken the bell into several parts and carved a hole in the concrete flooring four feet wide and two feet deep. It was never known when the dynamite had been placed beneath the bell. The building was immediately sealed off and Army demolitions teams from Fort Lewis examined the scene along firemen, sheriff's deputies, and city police. FBI entered the investigation immediately. One of the case's only leads was a foreign car with California plates seen driving away from the scene, but that vehicle was found to have no connection to the bell boom. And with that lead a bust, law enforcement had zero suspects. Leslie Graham, 62, a custodian working in the building that night said the bomb, quote, scared the shit out of me. I didn't hear anything before it happened. I was around the corner when, boom. Mr. Graham's only injury was an ankle bruised by a flying hunk of wood. The blast wave flipped Mayor Terry Shrunk's office set on the second floor above the front entrance portico. Four city councilmen burning the midnight oil in the same chamber as the mayor's desk were also thrown by the concussion, then picked themselves off the floor, found they were all uninjured, and went back to blasting rails of coke off of each other's gavels, allegedly. 
1993, the Oregonian said, quote, Wild, highly vocal speculation blamed the blast on either left-wing or right-wing terrorists, depending, of course, on the accuser's own political persuasions. Others guessed it was a monumental prank that careened out of control. Quote, Portland's second replica is located outside of City Hall's East Portico, near the intersection of Southwest 4th and Madison Streets, and across from Terry Schrunk Plaza. The bomb did $170,000 in damage. Police have made no new developments in many decades, and no person or group ever claimed responsibility for the blast. Neither was anyone ever prosecuted. They don't know who blew it up? Nope. Not even, not even a little bit. And I would think, you know, with almost killing political people, there was probably a lot of manpower, manpower put to that. And? And nothing. Heck, it could have just been some teenagers again. That were, yeah, found in some blasting caps. like, let's put it in the bell, see if it makes a loud Let's ding. do a goof on the mayor. <sighs> That's wild. If the person responsible for the bombing were ever identified, the five-year statute of limitations on non-capital federal crimes would mean they would not be a likely subject for prosecution. So come forward. Please. The murder of Portland's Liberty Bell was not the only dynamite crime in the state that fall, because I found in my research on the bell bombing that weeks earlier at the University of Oregon campus in Eugene, a dynamite bomb had been set off. And it wasn't the first such incident, but the latest in a series that stretched back to 1963. Next week, in part two of Explosive, I'll tell you all about these bombings, as well as the occurrence at Odie's Steakhouse in Bronco Room in 1986, which killed one person and sent another on a fugitive run for more than a decade. Wow. Wasn't that interesting? Bombing, so prevalent. Who knew? You know, I realized that I think the reason I focus so much on the 50s is is in reaction to my 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 dad has always been has oh. always said the 50s were the best time and I had so much fun <laughs> yeah. and it was like fucking stand by me without the dead bodies <laughs> and I, it's like been it's almost impossible to impress upon him that it yeah. wasn't it was for him but if he had but grown not, up yeah. with different circumstances in a different town and 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 looked different yeah it would have been kind of good because I also picture it that way from like our childhood of like. 50s music and 50s movies. Right. And, like, I it's pictured very, it as a different time. It's very... Um, a wholesome time. Oh, what's the word I'm picturing? Not idolized, but... Um, mm, utopian? You know, like, yeah. kind of fantasized as that. Or... Yeah, it's almost like a yeah. sci-fi, almost, with yeah. the utopia <laughs> yes. aspect of it. And the the thinking required to believe that it was like really like that, too. Yeah. It takes a little science and a little fiction, I think. <laughs> Anyways, so... Dad, it's your, interesting. it's your fault. Yeah, yesterday I was this writing and I was fault. like, oh my God, that's why I do this because I Epiphany. hate that my dad says yeah, that Yeah, you're shit. trying to say, here's how shitty they were. Well, also- Every I, year is shitty. Year. Most people say, mm -hmm. or, or people can say, I had a great childhood. Right. And I know, because I know my dad and he's told me things that like he didn't. He did not. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. Well, I guess that's kind of how you make it through life. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Is you, you hold on to the good stuff so you can kind of ignore and suppress the bad Delude stuff. Delude yourself.
I want to go to that day. <laughs> yeah, Surprise sales yeah, day. Yeah, they didn't define that, but I think it was just like something's you on didn't, sale. Or you didn't know that what would be on sale. Yeah, yeah. you get there and then it's a mystery item, I bet. Because JCPenney had something like that in recent years. You're talking my language now. Hello. <laughs> Where you would go and you, like it was on Black Friday, you'd get these coupons and you'd like scratch it off and you'd get like a oh, mystery yeah. surprise. Either money off, free money, or like a free item. There you go. Or a it was le- amazing. A Levi's belt. I mean, hell yeah. If you're up early anyway at the mall for that shopping, may as well. I love JCPenney. JCPenney was, for a time, the only store I could find clothes that fit my body. And thank you for JCPenney's. Thank you. Though I would say if I could go back in time and tell them to do something different, I'd say, let's play. (laughs) Solids, baby. You know, Emily loves her literature erotica. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Am I too loud? Nah. Well, just don't that, yell. But you don't as talk long like as you that. don't yell in the mic. Because sometimes you do have a little yell written into your script. So. I do. I write yell now. Something happened on the way to heaven. I didn't do anything. I'm literally sitting completely still. Well, isn't that interesting? I think he's telling a lie. Haunted headphones. Hi. Cha-cha. Hi. You just got me so horny that you said part one. I know. Surprise. <laughs> fucking little angel. Also, can you do that one more time? Because I think you said downtown. Oh, shit. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt downtown. you, though, because you were on a roll. It's a hard D kind of a day. <laughs> we all like that D. Yeah, we like it hard. <laughs> I'm a little stupid. <laughs> I, well, that's what I thought. Oh. Hello? What's happening over there? I'm just getting comfortable, I think. <laughs> Pants are off. Wiener's out. Oh my gosh, he pantsed me the other day and it was really funny. <laughs> and then I think I was leaving or doing something and then mm-hmm. I was like, ha ha ha. And I pantsed him, but I'm I'm not a I'm not a good pantser. I don't I think I've done it You're twice a great in my pantser. life. And I looked up and just had a butt in my face because I pulled everything down. <laughs> I was wearing two pairs of pants yep. and underwear. <laughs> full moon. I mean the full. And he turned and just was cupping himself. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Wow, I didn't know my 13-year-old friends were. <laughs> <laughs> and I was meeting his friends for the first time, and he pantsed me in front of them. <gasps> I was wearing tearaway Adidas oh, pants, no. and he tore them away. <laughs> Not the tearaway. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me in front of your friends? Oh my. How old was he? We're juniors. Oh, my God. He, You know, he does have the sense of humor of a 13-year-old. I mean, it I was lucky I was wearing cute underwear, but I'm like, wow, good thing I don't get embarrassed because yeah, that, that... I was, yeah, I still made out with him that night. That's how you do it. You got to neg them. You got to <laughs> rip their tearaway pants off and then they'll make out with you. <sighs> Composed of the most powerful explosive material that can be obtained. Or grown. <laughs> <laughs> or harvested from a, from a tree or vine. <laughs> like a potato. Like cinnamon. Full of things. That was funny. You just peel, yeah. You carve them off the tree. <laughs> yeah. And it curls up like a little cinnamon stick. That's right. Aaron M. Frank, 60. <laughs> Whose was that? Who was that? Was that John? It, had it to was be. I. <laughs> that was amazing. Wow. That was like fresh. Violent. We're using a milk frother in your throat. Uh, no, but I do. It's the, it's the coffee I'm drinking. It's got. It's got You're some milk in it. Always putting that frother in your throat. I got. I'm I can't sick of it. I got lactate in my throat. 
freeze dried coffee. I love too that the headphones provide for such mystery when that happens. Oh my god! Was it, was it me myself? It was a weird was one too. It, it was someone? like a tiny stream of bubbles. <laughs> That went oh. directly up the center front of my throat. I could feel like them. Like a vag, like a vag bubble. They were marching like ants. I thought it might have been ants. me. Because... Now I got the coughs from not laughing for 500 years. <laughs> my daddy needs therapy. You hear okay. that, dad? Daddy. Daddy. My grandma could leave any store with like $600 of merch oh, for yeah. the cost of $23. Yeah. Like it was impressive. You gotta go poop. I gotta go make a Friday surprise. <laughs> <coughs> oh, don't call it that. Makes you sound like you Turds only day. poop on Friday. <laughs> Turds day. <laughs> Turds. That is me. I'm so constipated lately. Aww. Oh no. We drank our goofy juice. I did have a lot of coffee. The cop waited. The cop waited. I have here. That's fun. Wait, I didn't do the waity. Drink a mug of milk, mug of milk a day. What is that? What is that what? dairy? Nobody Wait, knows. Drink what is a, that dairy? That, there's like a dairy, and there's there's trucks that go around and deliver them. <laughs> I sound crazy. A milkman? Cartoon, cartoon cowhead, yeah. and it's saying that. Ordered thong warning. Thong warning. <laughs> thong warning. You like it up your butt, then you like one of these. Because right now it is so far up my butt, it's like I'm wearing, like I'm wearing a, I don't know what I'm wearing, but your butthole starts throbbing. No time, no time. Out of control. <laughs> we can't. Yeah, we are. Okay, we stop. don't know how. Chief Brown. <laughs> Territories for miracle products. <laughs> Judge, our boobies are so cold. <laughs> <laughs> the bell will warm them. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>